Right, so the title of my preach today is, Can You See Me? You can turn to your neighbor and say, can you see me? So, uh, basically, the genesis of this preach was actually a few weeks ago. I, was, I knew I, was gonna, I had a preach coming up, and I was t- trying to think, oh, what do I need to speak about? And it came from Pastor Peter Prothero's preach, which his title was, Your Breakthrough is in the Stretch. It was an amazing preach, and it touched a lot of people. However, I didn't like it. <laughs> I liked the preach, I just didn't like the title. It really annoyed me. I remember I was sitting right there, and P3 comes out, I was so, so ready for this amazing word. He said, your breakthrough is in the stretch. And I was like, done. Why? This is so annoying. This is really, really frustrating. I don't really want to hear another preach about me stretching even more. Leave me alone. That's generally what I was thinking. But I couldn't say anything because P3's preaching. Everyone's around going like this. I'm sitting there. Because I'm sitting in the front row. He has this really, like, deep stare. So every now and again, he'll just look over at me. and (laughs) He can see what I'm thinking. It was really frustrating. But it really, really impacted me. That that preacher, your breakthrough is in the stretch. And I was like, why? (laughs) I can't be bothered. I was sat here, I was literally sat there thinking, look, God, can you see me? Can you see me? Can't you see what I'm doing? I've already got tons of plates spinning. I've got this going, I've got that going, I've got that to do tomorrow, I've got this meeting. And you want me to stretch even more? Can you see me? Leave me alone. I can't be bothered. (laughs) How many people genuinely I felt like that. You've come to church, you want to be encouraged, and someone brings a word that says, you're going to be stressed even more. Please tell me I'm not the only one. Otherwise, this is going to be a really, really short preach. I'm like, all right, well done. All of you are more holy than I am, and then I can go and sit down. <laughs> but not only do I think I know a lot of people have felt like that over the last two years. Can you see me, God? I'm right here. And I it felt it really interesting that there's so many people been... T- um, throughout the service already this morning talking about here I am and that should be our heart's cry. Our heart's cry really should be here I am. However, a lot of us feel like not here I am, can you see me? God, can you see me? I am struggling. I don't know if I can stretch anymore. I'm tired. I don't know if I can serve anymore. In fact, God, can you not see everything that I was doing pre-pandemic? I was on this team, I was on that team, I was doing this, I was doing this. I went to this mission, I gave here, I gave this. I'm not stretching anymore, God. I don't want to. This should be my well done, good and faithful servant moment. I get to sit down and be like, it's your turn. And yet we still have a preach like that. You need to stretch more. Can you see me? And I think a lot of people have got to that point at the end of the last two years. And it's understandable. I can, I've had conversations that like I can see how people can get there. But the problem is it can lead you down one of two ways. You can either have selfish ambition as a result. You can respond with selfish ambition. Or you can respond with learned helplessness. And both of them have their own issues. I'm going to unpack them now. So, first one, selfish ambition. I, if I'm being honest, probably when it comes to me having a feeling of, Lord, can you see me? My response, my human response is probably going to be, 
Yeah. All right. You think you can't see me? You didn't see me before. You're going to see me now. When you've been overlooked, when you feel like you're not seen, a lot of the time people respond like, oh, you, you can't see me. All right, cool, 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 cool. You're going to see me now. And work over and above what is expected of you. Sometimes if people, if someone feels like jilted and feel like rejected by a girl, they're like, they go over and above to, over and above to make themselves notice. I'm like, hello, here I am. Or even at work. For me, this is, if I'm being honest, this is probably what I tend to do. If I've ever been passed over for a promotion, I'm like, cool. I'm going to work harder than the person that you hired. I'm going to go over and beyond that person. You're going to look really stupid. <laughs> you thought you were not going to hire me. You're not going to hire me. All right, cool. See how that works out for you. Because I have been sent by God, and that means that you are an enemy of the Most High. So good luck to you. Well done. Yeah? You didn't want to hire me. You didn't want to promote me. What's what happens to you now? God's coming for you. Meanwhile, God's looking at you like, I'm sorry, I don't know you. Who's this? As if you're King Saul in the middle of Israel, like, mm, I didn't ask you to do this. You're doing too much. This is not what I've asked you to do. You end up doing all this extra work to try and get noticed, and for what? When it's not what God has called you to? I've end often ended up letting pride seep in, thinking, look, look, look at me. This is what I'm doing. You should see me. You should see me. But that's pride talking. And we can see this in Genesis 4, verse 3 to 7. When... Um, in the story of Cain and Abel, and when they're presenting their sacrifices before God. So it says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but Cain on his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, Will you not be accepted? If you do, um, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. A lot of the time, when you're trying to go above and beyond, and you're trying to go, look, you should see me, sin is crouching at your door. You see, Cain went on to go and kill his brother as a result of his own pride. That's the problem with the can't you see me attitude. Pride can often seep in, lead you to a place that you don't even mean to be. Because in your mind, you're thinking, no, you should be able to notice everything that I'm doing. God, God, look at me. When actually you're operating out of his spirit. And as a result, sin is crouching at your door. The second is learned helplessness. And this is actually... Um, a concept in psychology, and I'm going to read it out. So, learned helplessness is when someone goes over a stressful situation repeatedly, and then they come to believe that they're unable to control or change the situation, so they do not even try, even when opportunities for change become available. 
So learned helplessness, basically the, this concept comes from um, some experiments that in the 60s that they did on animals. So the two types of experiments. One was where they held some rats for ages until the rats no longer resisted. Then they put two groups of rats into water. So the group of rats that they put into water that they didn't hold swam for hours and hours and hours trying to get to a point where actually I need to escape. The rats that have been held before and they realize actually there's nothing I can do only swam for about 30 minutes before drowning. They'd learned that they were helpless. They did a similar experiment on dogs. So they, um, they rang a bell and this is really horrible by the way, not allowed anymore. <laughs> but they rang a bell and then shot the dogs. So every time the bell rang, the dog would receive an electric shock. Then they put a group of dogs into a case type thing where one side they would receive a shock, and if they were on the other side, they wouldn't receive a shock. The dogs that had never received shocks um, before, when the bell rang and they, they received a shock, they jumped over to the other side. The ones that had been trained beforehand just stayed there and continually took the shocks because they had learned helplessness. They'd been put in a situation repeatedly to the point they were like, what's the point? Why bother? And I think actually a lot of people at the end of the pandemic and at the end of what they've gone through over the past couple of years, whatever you might go through in your life, pandemic or no pandemic, sometimes it's really easy to get to a point like, what's the point? I'm not even gonna bother. You can tell that I've got a child now because the only person that I can think of in this was Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> He's really annoying, just want to clap him around the head. <laughs> Never mind. You ever sent this text? No worries. There's worries. <laughs> and you really feel like, oh, I'm just, I can't be bothered with this anymore. What's the point in me even trying to do anything Act beyond myself. Strive for anything more. Why bother? I've learned helplessness. And the problem with this is that it can lead to three things. One, it helps people. Learned helplessness makes people believe that their current struggle is permanent. Their current struggle is permanent. Learned helplessness helps people believe that their current struggle it's pervasive. Now, pervasive means that it invades every single aspect of their lives. Rather than their struggle being in one aspect, whether it's just their job, it starts to invade everywhere. Your negativity starts to impact your family, your love life. Learned helplessness makes your struggle become personal. You don't look at it as just a situation. You think, no, it's specifically about what I'm doing wrong. So the example of this is, say if you take a test and you fail, Rather than thinking, the test was probably just a bit hard. You think, no, I'm dumb, I'm stupid. This is the problem is with me. And I think a lot of people, not just within church, but within the world, have learned helplessness as a result of our situation. But that's not what God has called us to. We are not called to be helpless, we're called to be hopeful. We are not called to be helpless, we're called to be hopeful. Your situation is not permanent because God is always fighting on your behalf. 
Your situation cannot be pervasive because the influence of God in your life is greater than any current situation. Your struggle is not personal because the attack is on the kingdom and you are a member of that kingdom and the author and finisher of our faith is the ruler of that kingdom. It's not personal. We are not helpless. We are hopeful. It's so easy to get to that point. Can you see me? God, can you see me? And the answer is always an emphatic yes. An overwhelming yes, he sees you. One of the best examples of this in the Bible is actually David. And what I like about David's story that I always forget, he was anointed to be king of Israel at around about between 10 to 15 years old, but he didn't actually become king until he was 30. Imagine having that anointing on your life, knowing what you're going to become, and then seeing someone do a terrible job in front of you, and you just have to wait. And what I love about David, and we're going to go through stories in a sec, is that he didn't try and force it. He wasn't like, God... You anointed me. Can you see me? Can you also see that guy? He just waited. He operated in God's will. His own father didn't even think of him when it came to being anointed king, even though he was serving diligently. So if you look at 1 Samuel 16, 7 to 12. After we, uh, Samuel had come to anoint the new king of Israel and gone through a few of David's brothers, we get here. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor the Lord has chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are, all, are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending to the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, and we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health, and he had a fine appearance and handsome features. I wish I had a friend like Samuel that would describe me like that. <laughs> then the Lord said, rise, and anoint him, this is the one. There were so many people in front of David. And what I want you to take from that is, God sees you, even when people in your family might not see you. When you are serving and just doing the right thing and doing the diligent service that God has put before you, God sees you. When it's your time to be anointed, when it's your time to be called, God will call you. God sees you. Even if you feel like you're in the depths of the wilderness, just tending to sheep by yourself, God still sees you. 1 Samuel 16, 17 to 22. So after David had been anointed to be king, this is in like the next couple of verses, and Saul is struggling. He's struggling as king of Israel, and he has an evil spirit that comes upon him. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messages to Jesse 
and said, send me your son David, who's with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey and loaded with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Functioning in your gifting will always bring you to the place that you need to do. Functioning in your gifting will always bring you to the place where you need to be. David didn't have to go to the, have to go to the, um, to the king and say, I play the Lyra, please, please pick me. No, he was just operating in his gifting to the point that people had heard about him. People knew about him. So when the situation became apparent, he was called for. So I ask you, what is your gifting? And are you fully operating in that gift? This is not even just about me saying that you need to come and serve in church, but this is what God has called you to. What is your gifting? Every single person in here has a gift. Are you fully serving in your gift? Don't run from it, because it will catch up to you speaking from experience. Every single bit of leadership I have had to do in church, I've tried to run away from. Do you really think I want to be here right now? I'd love to be sat down. <laughs> I'd love it. <laughs> I, remember, like, I could literally list it out for you. I, I, I had to write it down when I started to think about it, and I was going through it with my wife, Becky. She was like, yep, you ran away from that. Yeah, you tried to run away from that. Yeah, you're trying to run away from that. <laughs> so when I was at the university, I was part of a fellowship called JAF. I remember when they, they, in my second year, they asked me to become the worship leader. I laughed in the girl's face. I was like, nah, not me. I'm not patient enough. I can't be bothered to put up with people singing badly. <laughs> not me at all. Ended up doing it. Did that for a year. I got really comfortable. Loved it. I was like, you know what? I can do this. Fine. I said I got comfortable. God saw that. Then I ended up having to co-lead the entire fellowship the year after. Everyone's, everyone who had got positions in the fellowship was like, oh, thank you so much for blessing me with this. I was there like, <laughs> I was not happy at all. I didn't want to do it. And then I thought, fine, I finished with uni. I'm going to join the church called Kesed. Lovely. I'm going to sit in the back. No. <laughs> I became the youth pastor. Great. <sighs> All right. I really need to do better at this, like, shying away thing. I'm trying to hide. Even joining the worship team. I've said this story many times. Matt doesn't like me sharing it, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> I don't think Matt actually wanted me to join the worship team in the first place. <laughs> you see, actually, what, what had happened was I was... At the back, I was literally standing at the back of church, and my friend was like, hey, a bunch of us are on the worship team. You should join the worship team. And I was like, I'm good. I'm just going to stand at the back. Can't bother. I'm just going to stand at the back. Then my friend literally drags me to see Matt. And my friend goes, Matt, he's a, he's a musician. He should join the worship team. This is Matt's face. <laughs> Excuses. Excuse me. Look at him trying to cover himself 10 years later. Not having it. <laughs> what? So, literally, <laughs> practice on Thursday. <laughs> oh, don't, don't do that. We're, we're in church. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I went. After being convinced, even I was like, I don't think he wants me to join. I don't think he wants me. And I went, and this is what I said. I went as a guitar player, and I said, I don't really want to be a singer. 
I'm happy just being in the background. I just want to play guitar and just get on with it. I just want to become a better guitar player and a better musician. I'm not really here to sing. I can sing a little bit, but it's fine. I'll just be in the background. Two weeks later, Matt sticks a microphone in front of my face. I heard you singing. You're going to sing. <laughs> Even worship leading. Worship leading in general. Didn't really want to do it. The only reason why I started worship leading, because Matt and Sarah got sick on the same week. I was the only one left. I had to do it. <laughs> had to do it. God knew if they asked me, I was going to say no. Had to get kicked into it. I can't run away. Preaching. Didn't really want to do that. Even becoming worship leader or worship pastor or whatever this role is now. Matt knows me well enough to give me a long run up. So he gave me about six weeks to think about it because he knows like, I'm just not going to want to say yes eventually. But he knows I'll get there eventually because God has a habit of just doing that to me. Functioning in my gift brought me to every position that I ended up with. I didn't seek title. I never seek title. I never seek position. I never ask God about what's next because I'm probably scared of the answer. I never seek it. All I do is just I come to church every week and I live my life functioning in my gift. God leads me to these positions and I go, okay, I'll do this. Okay, I'll do that. If you function in your gift, wherever you need to be in your life, God will take you there. All you have to do is just function. 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 37. So we're getting to um, a little bit later. David is about to battle Goliath. And he says, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. A lot of the time you might go through battles and bits of persecution which you think no one else sees. I know a lot of people in church, I wouldn't, this is not even me being prophetic, there are loads of people in church that are struggling with things that I feel like no one else sees what's going on. But you're battling through to set you up for a public victory. Think about all those battles that David had in the midst of the wilderness. No one knew about it, but yet they set him up to have a public victory in front of all of Jerusalem. <laughs> I know this, I've spoken about this before. It's re- it can be, get really, really difficult. When I, th- when I look at my daughter, and I've said this before, when I think about how difficult it was for us to conceive, going home after church week after week, crying, still having to serve, still having to function in our gifting, but so upset, and having to go through this battle in private, not knowing who to turn to, not knowing what to, who to, what to even say, And we had to go through that battle again and again. No one else saw it. And it's really nice when like, I'm up here on a Sunday and, and when my daughter's here just jumping up and down. I'd rather her do it here than on the floors at home. <laughs> when she's jumping, jumping up and down. 
And I go, yeah, people get to see that. People don't necessarily see the tears for 18 months that we had. People don't realize that we were literally booked in to go and see a fertility doctor. And the day, <laughs> yeah, we were booked in. We didn't know what else to do. I remember it was at the start of uh, 2019. And... Um, uh, usually at the start of the year, in non-COVID times, um, the whole church gets anointed. And it was that anointing Sunday in January. And I remember I was at home just watching TV. Becky comes running downstairs and hands me something. It wasn't the pregnancy test. That would be gross. But, <laughs> it, but she hands me like a little baby girl. And I'm like, what? And I couldn't believe it. And I, I literally remember going, oh, this oil must be very strong because I really don't. <laughs> Where has this come from? Out of the blue, it was so out of the blue. We were booked in to see the fertility doctor the following week. That following week. And it was so amazing to go, God, you saw every prayer. You saw every tear. You saw every battle. And yet you led, me to, led us to a place. I've never been so excited to cancel a doctor's appointment in my life. Oh, it was so good. And I'm so thankful to God. Your private battle sets you up for a public victory. God saw every last bit. 1 Samuel 24, 4-6. So, after David defeats Goliath, everyone loves David. People are saying Saul kills people in his thousands, David kills people in his tens of thousands. Everyone's hyping up David. Eventually, Saul gets a little bit jealous and is like, you know what? I don't, I'm not really a fan of this guy. Why is everyone enjoying him more than me? So it gets to a point where actually Saul wants to kill David. And so David has to go into hiding because he knows Saul is after him. And then it gets to a point where David actually has the opportunity to meet with Saul. And so we get here. David and his men, they say, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. David is a much better guy than me. He felt guilty and all he did was cut his robe. If it was me, oh my gosh. There's a reason why I wasn't alive. That I would have been gloating. Like, I could have got you. I really could have got you. I decided to allow you and spare your life. But David felt guilty. And the reason why David felt guilty was because he knew the robe that Saul had was a symbol of God's anointing over Saul. Even though David knew he was called to be king of Israel, he knew that Saul was recognized as God anointed. He knew he had people around him saying, this is it. Remember when God told you about that you're going to deliver your enemy. This is the time. And David still felt guilty, like, no, nah, I shouldn't have done that. Sometimes it's really easy to try and justify operating outside of the will of God and try and force the will of God in your life because you had a word spoken over you. But rather than trying to do that, David honored the Lord's anointing, honored the will of God. Didn't try and do too much, just stayed within the will of God. It gets really, really easy. He had people around him hyping him up. Abraham had the same thing. 
Abraham had the specific promise from God that he's going to have thousands and thousands, countless descendants. But he decided to operate out of the will of God and sleep with Hagar. I'm sure it was very easy for Abraham to justify. It was my wife's idea. I'm meant to have loads of descendants. I'm just operating in the will of God. It can get really easy to justify your wrongdoing, your overreaching, because you're saying that you're operating in the will of God. When really, if you honor God and you're patient with God, God will deliver you to where you need to be. We're not meant to do above and beyond what God is doing. We're meant to steward what God has given to us. Our life is about stewardship. We were built for stewardship. Not to look at the will of God and go, well, this is what I'm going to do on top of it because, you know, God needs a bit of help. When Adam was in the garden, his two jobs were to walk with God and to steward what was laid before him. We are built for stewardship. God has trusted you with his Holy Spirit. God has trusted you with something so precious to be able to hold. God has trusted you with your gift, with his spirit for you to steward and to bring forth more. That is the point of the parable of talents, to steward and to multiply, not to add. It's so easy to look around and get comparative and be like, well, you know, that person's got this and that person's got that, and so how am I supposed to be doing more? Oh, lockdown happened and that person's business grew loads and loads and my business failed. Lockdown happened and that person lost 152 stone and here I am. I still look like bread. I don't really, <laughs> it's so easy to get caught up in comparisons and thinking, well, how am I supposed to do more? Because clearly, clearly what God is doing is not enough. So I should be doing more. I get it. I have definitely had that argument with myself before. I have definitely compared myself unnecessarily to people. People at work, people in church, people in my family. And it just makes me, it ends up making me feel so frustrated. I'm thinking, God, I know that you've called me for something greater. So why is it not working? Why is it not working? I went for that job. I played every Sunday in that month. I did all of these things. Can you see me? Can you see me? It's so easy to get there, and I've been there again and again. But comparison and competition only focuses on your glory. That's not what church is about. Church is about community. And community is his kingdom. You see, when you focus on community and cheering on others and celebrating others, you move from your glory to his glory as a result. You move from your glory to his glory. James 3, 16 to 17 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, 
impartial and sincere. But the wisdom that comes from heaven brings forth good fruit. It's not about our own selfish ambition or what we can do. It's the wisdom that comes from heaven. In Philippians 4.12, Paul says that, um, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or whether hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I have learned the secret of being content. Because that's all we're searching for. We want to be content. We want to be, find exactly who we are in Jesus. And I think what's happened in church, in fact, I know what's happened in church, is that we've just allowed everything to kind of get in the way of how we see ourselves. So the question, can you see me? It's probably as a result of, I can't even see myself. I'm not even sure what I'm doing anymore. I'm not even sure who I am anymore. I've forgotten who I am in Jesus. Lord, can you see me? Because I can't see myself. But what I like is the secret of being content. The very next verse is Philippians 4.13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The secret of being content, the secret of finding your identity is finding yourself in him. Lord, here I am in you. I find myself in you. Can I get a keyboard player up, please? <laughs> find yourself continually in him. The answer is always that God sees you. Even when you feel like you're not seen, God always sees you. Even in times when we feel helpless, we are called to be hopeful. 